playing the middleman was not something that I totally appreciated. And what really drew me to like more the producer side is you have control. And not only do you have control, but there's also room for conversation and philosophizing and being with nature and listening to the birds sing and all things that really allowed me to slow down again. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, there's a future in agriculture. There has to be a future in agriculture because we have to be able to raise food. And some of that future, especially for people getting started, farming might put them closer and closer to urban populations, to cities. That's a challenge. Some people feel like, well, okay, fine, you know, have farming, let's have ranching. But I don't want to necessarily close to me. But for opportunities for people getting started in farming and ranching, they really have to look all over the place and find those opportunities. Sometimes they're right in cities, around cities, and in counties, and working with governments. Well, my guest today has got experience in those areas, and I want to welcome Andy Brighter. And Andy, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Thanks for having me, Roger. And Andy, you um, you were raised in the Chicago area, weren't you? Yes, in the North Shore of Chicago, in the suburbs, far away from agriculture. Yeah, well, I kind of am familiar with that area. On the North Shore, you are you close to Northwestern University? Yes, another 10 or so miles north of there. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know that area well. My daughter graduated from Northwestern, so went back there as often as I could to see her when she was up at, up at Northwestern. That's a long ways away from, you know, raising livestock, just farming. Uh, I mean, at what point did you think that your future wasn't in the north, the the North Shore there above Chicago, and that in fact you could imagine yourself putting on work boots and going out and taking care of cattle? I guess my initial inclination for it happened when I was at the University of Denver. I went to business school there, and that school really teaches entrepreneurship, really teaches following your passion. And at that time, I really had two fat passions. One was sports. I loved the Chicago sports teams. And the other was food, um, farm to table, eating food, eating out, um, learning about cooking and things like that. And it started to turn my mind away from what I historically knew, which my dad worked in uh, stock markets in Chicago and to something a little bit different, a little bit more closer to my personal passions. Um, that's really what started me off on that route. Oh, that's, that's great. I also live close to the university of Denver. So I'm kind of familiar with that area too. And I understand how it is to be a sports fanatic, both in Chicago and Denver, although in either case, it's been fun lately, but it'll be fun again someday. But Denver, too, is has uh, is, is really got um, a good food culture. And, you know, there's a lot of great restaurants that pay attention to where they're where they're getting their food. And, 
you know, a couple of good farmers markets and and so forth. So I get it too on the on the food scene. So beyond though, just having those thoughts, having been encouraged to be creative when you're doing the entrepreneurial studies at the University of Denver and enjoying uh, the food culture. And then when you can kind of contemplate and saying, gee, I'd kind of like to go this way. I mean, how do you exactly take that first step in following your bliss? Yeah, I think that the first step actually happened in trying to avoid stepping into the adult world. So I didn't want to get a job right after graduating college. And a friend of mine told me about a program called Woofing, which I've heard the acronym said a couple of different ways, but I say it as Worldwide Operations on Organic Farms. Oh, and yeah, woofing, I know woofers. What'd you say? I, I know woofers. Yeah. Yes. So it allowed me to travel to Spain to work on farms, travel relatively cheaply. And I was like, I don't want to go to work right away. Um, and I'll go do this thing. I'll travel around Spain, eat more, eat some jamón and some things like that. And while there, I met a few mentors, Juan El Aleman, which was Juan the German, who was a German farmer there, and Chico. And they really got me contemplating more about oh, I could actually do this as well. I love food, and this is another way to look at working with food besides just going out to eat at a restaurant. Well, I mean, those are great opportunities. And I've talked to a number of people that have had experiences, woofers, and I've had in uh, in the past, I've had people from the woofer, the woof organization. I always have to slow down. Worldwide opportunities on organic farming. And um, it's been a great start for so many people. They can get out, they slow down, they think of what they really want to do, and you work pretty hard too. Um, but you don't have to invest a lot, a lot of money into it. You're going to get to where you need to be, and you can stay there. You're kind of working, but you get room and board in the in the process. But then you got to eventually come home, and if you can apply some of the attitude, some of what you've learned in those experiences. If you decide you're going to end up back in the United States, was it automatic that it was going to be Colorado? Or did you get on a plane and head back to North America and say, boy, anywhere, I could I could try to make this happen? Yeah, the, the first stop back was Chicago. I, I had to live in this city and be closer to home after being away for four years in college. And I had a opportunity there to work for a local food distributor. So I got to use some of my knowledge learned on the farm to talk to farmers in southeast Wisconsin and in the suburbs of Chicago further out in rural Illinois who are growing mainly market vegetables and work with them and we, I was working for somebody else who was trying to set up a couple of hubs around Chicago and bring local food into the city more easily than it was currently being done. Well, that has to give you some mixed feedback, because if you were buying products from them, they always are a little bit unhappy. They want a little bit more than you're probably offering. And you were trying to get a, a little bit more different varieties of timings you want. And so there's a little friction between, you know, buyers and sellers uh, that you have to, to navigate. And in the meantime, you got to sort through and recognize that maybe oftentimes they're complaining about how tough it is. But you see some glimpse of something that's still appealing to you that these guys are always telling me it's terrible. And they always say I'm not paying enough money and I'm too demanding and they can't 
they can't meet all our requirements but you were sensing you know these are happy people in a way that i might want to be see i put all that in your mouth right now i'm not sure you can you can back away from all of it but but uh, how much fit <laughs> no a, lo a lot of it fit i will say on the other side too working with restaurants and schools they also have complaints so playing the middleman was not something that i totally appreciated and what really drew me to like more the producer side is you have control and not only do you have control but there's also room for conversation and philosophizing and being with nature and listening to the birds sing and, and um, all things that really allowed me to slow down again um, just like you were talking about with woof well, you know, you had um, you had the benefit of living in a, a nice part of Chicago that I'm familiar with. Uh, uh, sounds like your dad had a good job too, and the, and the family growing up in that region. There are other people that were prosperous. They didn't have farms, so some you didn't have the advantage of like going back to a family farm. So one of the things that slows people down is if you want a ranch or farm, you've got to have some land to ranch and farm with and if you wanted to go out and buy it uh, anymore it's just incredible numbers that it would take and millions and millions of dollars and i suspect you weren't starting off with millions of dollars that you could go buy land how did you make that connection because you had to find a place to do it and find a place that you could get started without necessarily uh, writing a check out for millions of dollars yeah, and I still have never had to write that. I don't own a single acre of land to this day. Um, and how I was able to do that is I really, uh, I ended up moving to Boulder, Colorado, where I'm currently farming. I worked on a ranch in Wyoming, a relatively conventional cow-calf operation. When I was working for a farm here in Boulder called the Golden Hoof, I was learning about the local scene here of agriculture. A uh, scene that is very close to the rural-urban interface. Um, the citizens of Boulder many years ago decided they wanted to keep land open. Um, and a lot of it was maybe for their zen and chi and good feelings and preventing development and things like that. And agriculture played somewhat of a role in that, but it wasn't necessarily the biggest role. But it was a part of the city's charter and the county's open space programs has a huge mission with agriculture. And as I was interning and managing the Golden Hoof Farm, I saw a niche for somebody like me, somebody who's really wanting to provide regenerative agriculture and healing lands and really regenerating lands, who's younger, um, who has a little bit more hustle in them than maybe somebody who's been doing it for 40 years already. And mm -hmm. I was able to find land partners and work with different folks from different backgrounds to say, let's do this together. Other folks from NGOs or governments, and let's try these experiments on properties, which means that I don't have to write that million dollar check to get on land. I'm actually not paying for land. I'm getting it uh, for a zero dollar rate a lot of cases or being paid for land because of what we're proposing to do on the properties. You know, I've talked to a couple of other people that have done something similar like that, that they found land that they could they could use. And um, it's an interesting stage of the process. Like if you went out and got a book on saying how to become a farmer, 
Uh, well, actually, there are a couple of books like How to Become a Farmer, and some of them say try to try to look for those opportunities, find some place you could farm, sign sign somewhere that you might be able to graze. To take that from an abstract idea to actually doing it, you know, if you were going to be looking in in Boulder, sitting down at one of the coffee shops or at home, man, how do you get started? You know, to start searching for those places where you could, you know, put a livestock operation. So I, I talked to a lot of people when I got started. I tried to share my dream with as many people as possible to some, create some sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of once I speak it, it'll, it'll come. Um, a couple of those people really started with just my peers, the Flatirons Farmers Coalition. I've served on their leadership board previously, and I'm still a member of the organization. And just sharing with my peers, we each get to share our dreams together and really try to say, how do we make this happen? So some of the properties that I am currently managing are other farmers who are maybe a little older than me who needed a grazer coming in because they're vegetable producers. I also shared it with the USDA NRCS agents in the areas and CSU Extension, and they talked to private landowners who said, uh, the private landowner that I'm currently sitting at, he's a retired tree farmer, and he wanted a young person to come in so I just kept sharing that story and making connection and finding those places where we can really partner and work together and have a mutually beneficial relationship. Describe one of those transitions into getting up and running someplace. So the first one was the home property we have now, which we call Left Hand Valley. And basically what happened was I was talking to our local NRCS agent, Sylvia Hickenlooper, and she um, said, you know what, I don't have anything for you. It was December, but, you know, the here are tools, look through Equip, look through this program. And then six months later about, she called me and said, this gentleman named Keith is looking for a grazier. And, you know, within two days, I tried to get myself out on Keith's property, a private property, and meet Keith and listen to what he wanted. Um, and I brought along uh, Carl Stark from the Golden Hoof, who I worked for, who I kind of consider one of my farm dads. And we both really looked at each other and was like, this is, a, this is the opportunity. I need to capitalize on this now, make this happen. And Carl and his wife, Alice, allowed me to do some custom grazing for them that summer within another three weeks, a really short period of time because they were running low on grass and bring their cattle to Keith's property, manage them for two months and demonstrate to Keith, even though we had a very small lease contract, it was for a seven month period of time only, I'm really going to do what I'm saying I'm going to do. And I'm so confident in that, that I'm not looking for a long-term commitment right now. I'm going to prove to you that I can build the layers of trust with you, that I'm going to take care of your property, how I'm saying I'm going to take care of it. And once we've built that trust, we can work towards a longer term lease and moving quickly and having partners like the Starix who just were like happy to help, which is long term relationship I've had uh, demonstrated to somebody like Keith, the landowner here that, hey, he's going to do what he's going to do. And he's going to be truthful with that and honest. And I'm going to like working with him. Now, were you able to you know, bring cattle out there and the fences were okay to go and they had some place to water and, you know, the, the basics were there. Did you have to do any fixing up to make it good enough to keep cattle in? I had to do some fixing fencing right before the cows showed up. I was a long week before 
I was bringing the cows here to make sure that they all, everything was clean and ready to go. Um, there was a permanent exterior fence. Um, how I manage my animals is we use a lot of portable and flexible fencing. So, so uh, there's not much additional fencing needed for how I manage my animals. They get very used to routine. We've even brought animals in from a cattle auction that I bought and they get used to the electric fence within within a couple of days if they're not really pressured and then you can start to pressure them tighter. So I did end up buying a bunch of pigtails, some reels. Carl and Alice helped fill some holes of where I didn't have that because they wanted to see me succeed. They're my mentors. Uh, they want to see their people that work for them succeed as well. So they provided some of those holes. And then in future years, I started to purchase the stuff myself because I knew I had something longer term that I can set up. Now, with uh, with the cows that you're you're grazing there, so you're grazing it to a certain level. I mean, how often do you have to move them before you feel like they've they've got a certain area just about right, and then you take them over to to new new pasture? So we we make a rule for ourselves that we move them a minimum of once every day. Oh, um, and wow. that's to make sure that we're going to check on the animals and that they're getting fresh grass. Um, we work on a lot of land that needs a lot of love, so there's not always the best grass out in the field. And by ensuring that we're moving them every single day, they're getting at least a fresh plate of grass that's available that day. And that is also some sort of marketing, you know, it's a lot easier to say, I move them once a day to people who are buying our meat than say, I move them here and there it's just an easier sell, and it also holds us to a principle that we're never going to leave. Um, we do have different properties that we move them to based on when we're done with that individual property, and we truck and trailer them there. And that can be they're on an individual property getting moved every single day. They can be there anywhere from six to eight weeks before we truck and trailer them to a, a, a separate property that we're managing. What do you do about all that time that you have snow cover and they don't have, you know, good fresh grass to graze? So in our my first year, I actually sold cows. I just said, I'm done. It's getting too cold here. I don't want to deal with breaking ice and snow. And I'm okay with getting rid of the herd right now because I don't want to pay for hay. And I don't want to, you know, completely drain my bank account in these early years just to hold on to animals an extra couple of months. And I bottom new again come springtime this year we're grazing them a little bit harder into winter and longer into winter because we're have more grass ahead and we've stockpiled forage and i am very fortunate where i live i don't live too far north and i live in a place where it's 60 degrees and sunny in the middle of december right now so there's no snow on the ground and when snow comes it melts within within 48 hours usually so I don't have to deal with as many issues as if I was living further north in a snowier, less sunny location. Now, you've chosen to, to have cattle. Did you ever consider sheep? Yeah, I've considered and am considering sheep and goats and pigs and all sorts of other animals. But cows, to me, was the best starting ground. They listen to fences a lot better than other animals. I don't have to be as concerned about predation as other animals. And it's the animal I enjoy working with most. They have a, a calming presence that I really appreciate working with them and using stockmanship to really get them to do what we want. And 
Um, so that's my first love is the yeah. cow. Cows are great. Uh, predation is a huge thing, though, I'm sure, around there. There's like everywhere. There's coyotes all over the place. And you'd have to have good dogs out with a sheep all the time and, and a herder in, in many parts of Colorado. Did you have to go out and buy a truck or get a trailer or something like that to be able to bring cattle to and from these properties? So the way I worked things out was I developed business partners with the Golden Hoof and Part of the business relationship is I get to use some of their equipment for a certain amount of time to provide a loading ramp for the business. So I don't have to spend a whole bunch on overhead to start. I mean, we all know in the agricultural world, overhead and capital expenditures are humongous upfront. And they were willing to take a part of my business. They own a part of my business to say, here's this equipment. And in the past three years now, I've been able to say, prove out the business a little bit more and figure out other ways to fundraise or get investors or say the beef or other sales can actually purchase this equipment that I need and I need to have on farm all the time. And it's really interesting. The world that we are approaching with regenerative agriculture is there's a lot of monies out there via grant programs and other things like that for folks who are, working to heal the land. And this year I received a grant from Boulder County's um, Office of Sustainability, Climate Change and Resilience to purchase a cattle trailer, a squeeze chute, uh, portable panels, because I'm grazing public lands and I'm sharing all that equipment. My neighbor actually is using our panels today and it's, you know, the government bought it. So I believe it's, it's public. I, I'm the steward of that, which means it stays on my property. I get to use it more than a lot of other people get to use it. But if somebody wants to use that, I'll let them borrow it. Or if they're making money off of it, I'll charge a relatively nominal fee to say, I got to pay for maintenance when the trailer is going to break down at some point and this will help me pay for it. Um, but there are things like that out there to help pay for some of that capital expenditure that I didn't want to commit to right away. You know, I've heard other people say that too, and it's 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 encouraging. But the other thing too, it draws attention to what in the past has been sometimes stressful relationships between government agencies. And some people, when you describe this, you, they would use the word bureaucracies to, to say, well, it's not easy to deal with the, the bureaucrats, uh, whoever the government agencies are. And, and in fact, though, I mean, you're finding that they're kind of they're kind of getting more engaged in a, in a good way, but I, I suppose there's pluses and minuses. I, I'm sure not all government agencies are the same. And that, how have you found that relationship? Because you do need to work with people in local government agencies to with your program. Yeah, I, I mean, there's various departments and offices of our local governments here that I work with, besides even the one that funded this grant. I mean, they own a 40,000 acres of agricultural land in Boulder County, and I lease land from the city of Boulder here. So I work with them on a different and many levels. Um, I find it to be a really good partnership. There are obviously things that um, are more hoops to jump through in terms of administration and, and things like that. But they want to conserve the land resources here in Boulder, and they want to do it with multiple stakeholders in mind. 
And if I can be a steward of the land with my business and my employees, if we can all do that and, and take care of those different stakeholder goals that they have, then they want to work with us. They want to help. They want to be there and be good partners. And um, it creates a mutually beneficial relationship for my business. You know, I think people that know of Boulder to have an image of it being a pretty liberal, very progressive kind of community. Um, certainly concerned about the environment, lots of concern about the environment. And I would imagine that you run into some attitudes of, of some people that just feel like, gosh, um, we need we need less cattle, not more cattle, because of concerns with climate change and so forth. I mean, that would be that would what people would expect. And and to be growing a business in in the, an environment like that, in an area that has a reputation for being extremely environmentally concerned and paying attention to climate change and so forth, some people would be surprised that you're you're able to do it there, and would suspect you might run into to issues of people that are kind of negative on cattle production. Would that yes. be fair? Yes, that's that's very fair. We run into that. Um, I'm going to repeat something that Alice Starrick, my old boss, said to me one time, which was a vegetarian or a vegan is going to be her next best customer, meaning that those <laughs> are the type of people that really care what they put in their bodies. And if you can talk to them and, and you know, learn from them and learn where their perspective's coming from, and maybe you can teach them a little bit as well about the importance of cattle of ruminant animals in a grassland ecosystem, the importance of meat and protein for your diet, you know, all of a sudden that, that vegan is going to turn into probably one of your best customers. And I really try to look at various threats as really opportunities, as, as places to engage more, because those are places where there's the opportunity to make change. Well, and I would imagine, Andy, that if you can get one of them to get in the pickup truck with you and drive out and look at some of this country, they'd soon discover that you're not going to grow bananas or strawberries or anything out there. I mean, if you're going to use that land at all, what else could you do with it if you're not going to have urban sprawl and just build more houses, which they're trying to protect against around there? What else could you possibly do with it than, than intelligent grazing? That's a very good question, and really, you know, that's the name of my business. My business's name is Grandma Grass and Livestock. The state grass of Colorado is Blue Grandma Grass, and that's because that's what was growing here. That was the amber waves of grain that pioneers saw as they crossed the big prairie desert out in Nebraska and Iowa and coming out this way. And we really want to see more grass out here because that's what belongs. That was the millions of bison and antelope and elk that were roaming through here and how do we do it to the best and this is the area that it needs to happen in now on your land that you're working on are you putting um cow calf pairs or are you are are you putting you know yearlings out there what's what's the program so what i did this past couple years was i bought open coal cows um, i tried to buy younger coal cows and so animals that maybe are four to six, definitely bought some that are even older than that and ran them on this land that is degraded. And I felt like the cull cow, an animal that doesn't have to raise a calf, that doesn't have to put more bone on their body and could just put meat and fat on their body, 
would do relatively well on the land that we did. Um, and I have had plenty of accidental calves from doing that. We had almost a, not quite 50%, but we had several uh, accidentally uh, you know, bred cows this year. So we have somewhat of a cow-calf operation because of that. And it does cause some questions about uh, every time I talk to a rancher about that strategy is, oh, you're going to have bad meat because old animals are, are old. And um, we haven't found that to be the case ourselves. And these animals actually, for the most part, uh, really thrive on the environment, especially with getting moved every day and always having that consistently fresh plate of grass in front of them to keep them eating and keep them going. So... Do they? You end up selling them then at uh, auction markets, or do you do you have any of them processed yourself that you take them to a, a local locker or anything like that? Yeah, last year I had about a third of my herd uh, processed at the local locker. Um, this year it's going to be closer to two thirds of the herd processed at the for for beef and sold here um, through various outlets and. The rest of them, we will end up selling them back at the auction, trying to time it upright. And, um, you know, it's it's a growing business and we're still looking for different ways to have a successful, financially successful business that does regenerate the land. How long have you been doing this now? So I filed my LLC in March of 2020. So there's a lot of things going on in March in 2020, but that was an important yeah. month for my business. This divide between urban and rural is not quite as sharp as everybody says. But some people are concerned about the industrialization as they see it in large-scale agriculture. But when they run into people like you that they can tell really care and can explain their program, they're ready to be supportive. Yeah. I mean, it definitely creates a different arm to my business that I wouldn't have if I was on a ranch in Casper, Wyoming. Um, I have to have a marketing arm and I like that. I, I believe at the center, at the core of my business is actually community resilience. And building community resilience means talking with the community, sharing with them our story and learning from them and understanding what they want to see happen. So we had a barbecue here at my place with maybe 60 to 70 people showed up um, bought some beef as well on their way out. And you know, that was something that we have to do here in Boulder. And we have the opportunity to do to really get to know our customers, our landowners. If we're working on public land, everybody that lives in Boulder owns that land as well. And we really want to be integrated into the community as a whole, which when you're working on a 25,000 acre ranch in Casper, which I've worked on, no, it's a little different. You don't necessarily need that same thing. You have a lot of other things to be taking your time with. Yeah. It's a great story. Andy Brighter, really appreciate your being on Farm to Table Talk today. Uh, if people want to know about your farm or get in contact with you, follow what you're doing, do you have any place to point them that they could learn more about it or uh, about what you're doing? Yeah, the best place would be to visit uh, our website, which is GrandmaGrassLivestock.com. That's G-R-A-M-A GrassLivestock.com. GrandmaGrassLivestock.com.
Yeah, I really like what you're doing. And I'm sure today you've got some listeners inspired that have been saying, gee, I wish I could get started farming or ranching. And maybe I can. And I think there can't be any better conversation than one that shares that hope and enthusiasm and some good examples as you have today. So again, I want to thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 